from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and, pub and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we are uh, returning to Jonah proper, if you will. We've been in Jonah for the last several weeks. And uh, just to kind of reorient ourselves to the book, uh, Jonah was written around, uh, well, the events of Jonah occurred around 700 B.C. We don't know exactly when Jonah was written, uh, but uh, likely was written just before the people of Israel went off into exile around uh, uh, late uh, late 600 or 6th century BC. And um, so here's, here's Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. Uh, he is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyria, one of the common uh, enemies, kind of the superpower in that region in that day, uh, is actually on the decline a little bit. And God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And he sends Jonah with this message. Uh, their evil has risen up before me. Go and proclaim a message that I'm going to give you. And Jonah um, flees. He says, no, you know, I'm not going to go to our mortal enemy and I'm not going to proclaim this warning because that's really what it is, God. You're, you're giving them an opportunity to, to repent. You're giving them an opportunity to save themselves. Wouldn't it make more sense for this enemy of your people, O oh God, to ultimately perish from the face of the earth? And so Jonah flees. Uh, he heads in the exact opposite direction. If you were to look on a map uh, and look at where Nineveh was in relation to where Jonah was and where he headed, it was the exact opposite direction. So he flees, and God, we see in uh, chapter one and in chapter two, pursues Jonah. It's an incredibly uh, amazing act of God's grace that uh, this Jonah, who God you know, doesn't really need, could have raised up another prophet to send. God goes after Jonah and uh, brings the storm. Jonah's on the, on the, uh, on the boat in the sea and the, and the sailors are terrified. It's out of control. They think they're going down. God um, makes it clear that Jonah is the problem. And so Jonah's thrown off the side of the boat. The uh, storm begins to calm. The, the sailors begin to worship God. And Jonah begins to sink. And he gets to the bottom, and God sends this great fish to rescue him. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah worships God. And at the end of Jonah chapter 2, uh, the fish spits Jonah up on the beach so that Jonah can now do what God had originally called him to do. In the last four weeks, we've kind of been pausing between Jonah chapter 2 and Jonah chapter 3, and we're, we were picturing ourselves on that, you know, over 500-mile trek um, to Nineveh and, and asking ourselves what could have or what should have characterized Jonah as he moved from being this reluctant witness 
so evidently at the, in the first two chapters of Jonah to ultimately a faithful witness going to Nineveh and proclaiming this warning. And then along the way, we ask ourselves, what will, what will help us make that same kind of interior transition as well? How will we move as, as Christian believers from those who are the vast majority of us, myself very much included, reluctant witnesses to God's grace and, and instead be faithful witnesses? And so we kind of pause between chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we say, well, there's a number of things that ought to have characterized Jonah. When you look at Jonah chapter 2, you see in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, for instance, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And we asked how much God's love toward Jonah should have compelled him to go in love to give this message to other people. And we talked about the fact then that love really is crucial for moving from being a reluctant witness to a faithful one. Love for God and an overflowing love for other people, all people, that is generated by a growing sense of God's love for us in Christ. So that was the first thing we said ought to characterize Jonah. We don't know for sure. Certainly questionable when we get to Jonah chapter 4 that he actually went to Nineveh with God's heart for the people of Nineveh. However, we know that we're called to go with God's heart for lost people, for people who don't know Jesus. And so love ought to compel us. We also talked about the fact that there ought to have been this sense in which Jonah, in those, you know, steps that he had taken all the way through the desert to Nineveh, should have been going with the same kind of prayer that David was praying in Psalm 16. Jonah would have had the Psalms, many of them, memorized. Jonah chapter 2 is, references, I don't know, more than a dozen different psalms, either directly or uh, gives allusion to several different psalms. One of the psalms that Jonah would have had that isn't present in, psalm, in Jonah chapter 2 is Psalm 16, in which David says, Oh God, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he says, This one thing I desire, O oh God, to dwell in your house forever. And we talked about how that really ought to have characterized Jonah on his journey to Nineveh. Having been so graciously rescued by God, why wouldn't he have wanted to experience now and forevermore the greater sense of the very reality of God's presence and love for him? And so we said, you know, that, that ought to be our prayer as well and our desire that we actually live day by day with such an abiding sense of God's presence with us. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. So do we have this desire, like overarching desire more than anything else to draw near to God and experience as much as we can what he has for us in terms of his presence with us now, anticipating that day when we will be with him forevermore? And then we looked a few weeks ago, uh, third, we looked at this idea of the need to be praying. And we looked in particular at Jesus' teaching and, uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in particular the Lord's Prayer, that we ought to be people who are praying thy kingdom come types of prayers. Yes, we're praying for one another, we're praying for our own needs, but we're also praying that this glorious future that is broken in in the person of Jesus Christ this peaceable kingdom, this kingdom in which all things are being made new, in which God's shalom, God's peace, God's wholeness characterizes now people in their relationships with other people, people in their relationships with God, people 
in terms of their own interior world being rightly integrated and humanity in relation to God's creation. All these things characterize the kingdom of God that has come in Christ and will come in fullness when Christ returns. And so to pray, thy kingdom come, is to pray that those things would become a reality. Ultimately, it's to pray that Jesus Christ will return. And so Jonah needed to be, and we need to be, people who are praying thy kingdom come kind of prayers. Tonight at uh, 7 o'clock, please come back. We're going to be gathering, whoever wants to come, and we're just going to spend an hour praying that God's kingdom will come and have that begin to be a pattern in our life together as a church. And I trust you'll make it a pattern in your own life as an individual. And then last week, we talked about the need to proclaim the kingdom. We looked at Matthew chapter 4 and the beginning of Jesus' ministry in which he proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? So referencing the fact that the kingdom is broken in with Jesus. And now the offer of forgiveness, the offer of grace is being extended first through Jesus, John the Baptist prior to him, uh, then through the disciples, the apostles, through early church, throughout Acts, throughout the church, throughout history, and now, now the church today, now we are called to proclaim this message, this good news about the kingdom of God that is broken in in Christ and one day will come in fullness when he returns. And we, and we talked in particular last week about um, uh, the way in which we should think about proclaiming that kingdom in our day and age. And we talked especially about the need to do so in the context of story. And we talked about the need to not only know God's story, the story of this kingdom that is breaking in, what, what God has done to take a wrecked and ruined world by sin and restore it in his son Jesus Christ so that all things would be made new, to know that story, but also to know our own story, how God has taken us, having broken ourselves and ruined ourselves because of our own sin, and been restored to him through faith in Jesus Christ, and now brought into this great story of rescue that God is doing in his son Jesus Christ. To know, to be able to articulate our story, but especially out of love and concern for other people, to take the time to listen, to understand the stories of other people. And so now this week we return to Jonah, and in particular Jonah chapter 3. And in Jonah chapter 3, we get back to this message with which Jonah was sent to the people of Nineveh. And it's a terrifying message. It's a message ultimately of complete and utter destruction. It's ultimately also a message of grace because God does love people enough to warn them of what's coming. And Jonah was sent with that message. He was sent himself as one who had experienced that grace on the edge of utter destruction himself, rescued, given a new beginning, and now sent to offer people on the verge of destruction a new beginning if they would look to his God, the one true God. And so that's where Jonah is. And, and so we need to ask, are, is that where we are? I mean, do we, are, do we see ourselves in the same way as those who have been rescued from pending destruction? As those who have been given in Christ a new beginning, I don't mean a fresh start, I don't mean a second chance, a new beginning, <laughs> New creation, 
the Apostle Paul would say. And are we people who are recognizing that we are sent to, to warn people? Yes, in the context of story and, and, and knowing God's story and, and the good news of where history is heading for those who look to Jesus Christ and to know our story and to know the stories of other people and to, and to really spend time knowing and being known, but yet sent with a, a terrifying warning that must be heard and responded to. Let's, let's see what we can learn from Jonah chapter 3, recognizing that in a lot of ways, we're in the same place. Or we ought to see ourselves as such. So three things we're going to see from Jonah chapter 3. First of all, we are going to take a look at the terrible reality of hell. The terrible reality of hell. Second, we're going to look at the grace of repentance. The grace of repentance. And then third and finally, the gift of a new beginning. So the terrible reality of hell, the grace of repentance, and the gift of a new beginning. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we head into this now, we do pray that you would be working by the power of your spirit. Lord, would you bring conviction of sin? Or would you, would you bring that great gift of recognizing that we are not right with you? Lord, would you bring with that that great gift that is an expression of your kindness, that gift of repentance, by which we're compelled to turn away from the ways that we have pursued life and meaning and happiness apart from you, and the ways in which we have rebelled against you. We're creatures, you're the creator, and yet we've sought to go our own way. And Lord, that great gift by which you cause us to turn away from such things and turn instead to you and follow you, in newness of life, experiencing that great gift of a new beginning? Or would you do that work in us? I'm not capable of doing that. Only you are. And your word is powerful. And so would you, by your spirit, work through your word to accomplish your purpose, purpose in the hearts of the people who are here this morning? And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the terrible reality of hell. Now, Jonah's message is a message of complete destruction is imminent on account of the evil of the Ninevites. So you see that in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Why was he proclaiming that message? Well, the message that he was proclaiming was being proclaimed because God had sent him with that message. And back in Jonah chapter 1, God had said, I am sending you to Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. So God is acting to bring destruction to people because of their great evil before him. He's sending a messenger. He's sending Jonah to warn them. Now, it may be tempting to say, well, you know, this is just part and parcel of the Old Testament God. This is what you get from the God of the Old Testament. How thankful we are to know Jesus, the God of love and mercy, who never talks about hell or any scary thing like that in the New Testament. And of course, if you've read your New Testament, you know that Jesus actually teaches more on the topic of hell than anyone else in the Bible. He says things like this. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He's talking to his disciples. He's sending them out like Jonah was sent out. 
And Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, referring to God, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And that word destroy is not the Greek word that has to do with the idea of annihilation. It's the Greek word that has to do with the idea of ruin, of being ruined or being totaled. Imagine a, a car being totaled. It's it still looks like a car, perhaps. You can get the idea that it was once a functioning car, but it's now wrecked. It's totaled. It's ruined. It can no longer operate in the way that it was designed to operate. That's the idea. And, and Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 10, that kind of ruin, that kind of totaling or being wrecked, body and soul, in hell. He says things like this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. He speaks of hell as that place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same chapter, Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus says to those on his left. So again, in Matthew chapter 25, he's, he's saying to people who have said, Lord, Lord, have you not done all these great things in your name? And Jesus says, listen, who was it that, that fed the poor, who cared for the poor, who clothed the naked? They were the ones who did such unto me they will experience eternal life. They will experience eternal life because they have demonstrated the kind of life that flows out of being forgiven by God. They have lived the kind of life of love that people who have experienced God's love live. But then he says concerning those who have not shown such mercy, they will be, Matthew 25 verse 30, cast out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 25, or chapter 25, verse 41, same chapter. He will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment. Now what's he saying? What kind of picture is Jesus painting for us? Well, you know, the idea of darkness and fire are metaphors. And before you go, whew, I'm so glad they're just metaphors. Hear what Jonathan Edwards says about metaphors in the Bible. Jonathan Edwards says this, when metaphors are used in Scripture about spiritual things, they fall short of the literal truth. It is so to speak of outer darkness and, and fire and, and weeping of na and gnashing of teeth. And complete ruin of a whole person, we can't really fully comprehend. Metaphors only get us partway there. But let's take this metaphor of darkness. What does it speak to? It speaks to this idea of isolation and separation. Right? The people walking in darkness, we, we recognize this and we, we talk about Evan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. They, have been, they had been cut off from God. That picture in Isaiah chapter 8 um, in which people are looking to the sky, they're looking to the ground, they're, they're seeking to reach beyond the realm of the dead, looking to necromancers and, and mediums. They're looking everywhere but to God. Why? They're cut off from God. God has to move by his grace, ultimately send the light of the world, Jesus Christ, in so that people would look to him. And so this idea of darkness is this idea of being cut off from the presence of God. The one place where, create, where, where people were <clears throat> created to know fullness of joy. Now to be cut off from forever. Separation from God. 
Fire speaks to this idea of disintegration, right? Fire just simply disintegrates and breaks things down. It, it, it comes back to that idea of, an, of, of being ruined, not annihilated. Everything goes away, but this eternal decomposition, if you will, disintegration of a person. It's a terrifying picture. It doesn't mean that a person in hell ceases to exist. It means that they cease to be, in a sense, human. All that it means to be human. They don't have access to that. It's not real anymore. No giving or receiving of love. No thinking or feeling or choosing. No, ultimately, the one thing we're created to do and find enjoyment in, knowing God and worshiping him. None of these things we're able to do anymore. The person in hell isn't. Hell is ruined humanity forever. Hell is ruined personhood forever. Hell is being cut off from the presence of God and all of his joy and all of his goodness and all of his grace and only experiencing that aspect of God that is his judgment and his wrath and his hatred of sin forever. The only thing, or at least one thing it seems to be that people do feel in hell is regret. And so this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is not, I mean, you know, this isn't a popular message. It's never been a popular message. But especially in our day and age, it's, it's really kind of considered primitive and silly. And, you know, we can understand that. But a couple questions, you know, for someone who would say, I could never believe in a God who sends good people to hell. I mean, there are good, there are good atheists, there's good Muslims, there's good Buddhists. Quite frank, frankly, if, you're, if you recognize as a Christian who you are and your own need for God's grace, you will recognize that there are people who are, in a lot of ways, better than you, who aren't Christian. But if what we're saying is a good God could never send a good person to hell simply because they didn't believe the right thing, well, then we need to ask a couple questions about that. I need to ask you a couple questions if that's what you believe. And again, if you believe that, I understand. But the first question I'd ask is, why do you have any notion of good to begin with? I mean, if we're, if we're saying that God would never send a good person to hell, where does this notion of good come from, of, of good and bad, of right and wrong? Where does that come from? ultimately. I mean, we all know that justice ought to be sought where justice is due and where injustice has occurred. We all know that racism and classism and sexism are wrong, but if we're all just a cosmic accident, why are they wrong? We know that people in positions of power should not abuse their power, but if the strong eat the weak, why shouldn't they abuse their power? Right? If, there's, if there's no God, if there's no spiritual realm, if, if all there is is what can be seen and, and measured and, and, and touched, if you know, philosophic materialism is kind of where you are, then the question that needs to be asked is, well, where's this notion of, of good come from anyway? If we're going to 
ask, how could a good God send good people to hell, we first have to recognize that the only reason we can talk about good and evil is because there's a standard of good and evil that's outside of us. But then the second question I'd ask you is, well, how good? I mean, how good is good enough? If we're saying that God would never send a good person to hell, how good is good enough? Right? Is good simply you'd being you know, kind of true to your own internal sense of self? And when you go contrary to that, then you're bad, but when you're true to who you are, you're good? Is good defined by, you know, kind of common consensus? Is good defined by majority rule? There have been all kinds of cultures throughout history. There have been all kinds of people who have said, this is what's good for me and have done horribly wicked things. See, the, the Christian God, you got a sense of this in the confession of sin and assurance of God's forgiveness that we did just, just a few minutes ago. The, 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 the God of the Bible says, listen, here's the, here's the measure of good and evil. I'm calling you, I'm commanding you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor, which is anyone, as yourself, to love even your enemies and do them good. And so when we come confessing our sins as Christians, we not only confess the bad things that we've done, we also confess the good things that we failed to do. And so the, the Christian standard, if you will, of what's good is, well, it's beyond our, our reach. And there's no one doing it. There's no one who can say, I've... I've, I've not committed, you know, I've, I've, there's the threshold for the amount of bad things, and I've, I've not tipped that bar, right? My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. No one's plate is clean. That makes me think of my time as a, as a lab rat. After college, I worked in an environmental testing lab. I was a chemist. I used chemists in quotes because, you know, if you knew how to push beakers around, you could be a chemist in this lab. Well, one of the things that we did was measure water quality, and part of the measurement of water quality was, was uh, measuring the amount of bacteria that were present in the water. Not a pleasant thought. Hopefully, these tests came back with a nice, clean Petri dish and nothing growing on it. What was especially terrifying is when they came back with the Petri dish completely coated, and the way in which we recorded that in our logbook was TNTC. Colonies, too numerous to count. When it comes to our plate, when it comes to our record, when it comes to our sin, TNTC. Too numerous to count over against the standard of God's perfect holiness. So how good is good enough? And here's the thing at the end of the day. If you're saying God would never send a good person to hell, what you're actually saying is that good people get God and bad people don't. That is the message of every religion that's ever existed except one, Christianity. Christianity does not say good people get God and bad people don't. Christianity says people who know they're not good get God and the people who think that they're good don't. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Heaven can't be earned. Michael Bloomberg is one of our presidential candidates right now. Back in 2014, he was interviewed and he said, concerning heaven, when I die, I'm not even going to pause at the gates of heaven. I'm going to walk right in because I've earned my place. No one can earn their place. No one can earn their place. And don't think for a second that 
you or that I haven't thought that that's how we relate to God. Every time that we despair of our own righteousness, every time we think God could never forgive me, what we're really saying is I had to earn my way, we're missing grace. Michael Bloomberg's missing grace. You and I miss grace all the time. The good news of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be welcomed, not based on your own merit, not based on the good deeds that you bring, but based on the good that Jesus Christ did in your place. Now, if you are a Christian, do you feel compelled to take this message, this warning, to people? Compelled by, by love. I know I referenced a few, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, uh, that, that quote from Penn Gillette of, of Penn and Teller. Penn, you know, is, a, is an atheist, but he said this, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? So if we as Christians, and I put myself here in this camp, I let two things happen, fear of looking like a fool and lack of really saturating myself in the reality of God's love for me in Jesus Christ, keep me from saying hard things and risking ridicule. And that is, I, I will be held to account before God for that. Now, praise God, even that sin on my part is paid for through the blood of Jesus Christ. But do I take this message that seriously? And do I love people enough to warn them? Out of love and with a sense of urgency. Jonah went to Nineveh saying, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is there an urgency? If you're not a Christian, is there a sense of urgency that you need to respond to this message? The author of Ecclesiastes says, a man does not know his time. And then he gives this image of a fish being caught in a net suddenly or a bird being caught in a snare suddenly. Man does not, you do not know your day or hour. Do you feel a sense of urgency to respond to this warning? And if you are a Christian, do you feel a sense of urgency to give this warning. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. Spurgeon said this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. God relented in Jonah's time. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, we could have a whole sermon on that. I'll just send you back to Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 through 8. Read it yourself later today. What Jeremiah, what we see there in Jeremiah is that these prophetic pronouncements of judgment in the Old Testament are conditional. They're not absolute. There in Jeremiah chapter 18, God says, if I pronounce judgment on a city and these people repent, I will relent from my judgment. I will not pour out the wrath. Okay, so that's happening. It happened here in Jonah. But the fullness of time is coming. The day is coming in which there will be no more relenting. 
The cup of God's wrath will be poured out. What do you do? How do you respond to the terrible reality of hell? And we get a picture, we get an idea from the Ninevites here in this chapter. So let's look first, let's look secondly now at the grace of repentance. The repentance of the Ninevites. Let's just, we're going to work quickly now through this for the rest of this sermon. In, uh, in verse 2, it tells us that Jonah spoke the message that God had given him. So verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It was not his own message, Jonah's. It was God's. He went with God's message for the people of Nineveh. In the end, it was God that they heard. Don't miss this. This is so powerful. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. No, the people of Nineveh believed God. Jonah was doing the talking. It was God that they were hearing. That's so assuring. You, you go do the talking imperfectly, like all of us. It's God that they hear. It's ultimately God's message that you bring. It's God's spirit that's at work. Hopefully it's God's word that you're referencing. And it's God's power that accomplishes the task. Because it is God that people ultimately hear. So who did they hear? They heard God. How did they respond? They responded with what is an obvious picture of repentance. So in verse 5, second half of verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Fasting and sackcloth, this image of grief, of humility, of penitence. You look over at verse 7 and uh, the first part of verse 8. And he issued a proclamation. This is the king of Nineveh. He issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. This is a total repentance. It's from the least to the greatest. It's, it's from the oldest to the youngest. It's across the social strata. It includes the animals. This is complete Repentance, the king is saying, we are totally giving ourselves over to this God. We're crying out to him is the other way that they call out urgently to God. That's the end of verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Just prior to that, let them call out mightily to God. And then I just referenced there the other thing they did. There was a change in their behavior. They ceased their violence. Why did they respond that way? Well, fear. They were afraid of what would happen. Verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Fear and uncertainty. And where did it lead? And here's the thing that we can say about the Ninevites. It did not lead to a relationship with God. It didn't. Yes, they repented. Yes, they were afraid. Yes, they turned from their evil ways. They put on sackcloth and ashes. There's no reason to question that that was a genuine work of God in their hearts. And yet, they did not come into a saving relationship 
with the God of the Bible. Even within Jonah, you get the sense of that. In Jonah chapter 1, the sailors experience the same kind of thing. They call out on Yahweh, the personal name of God. They offer sacrifices. They worship God. Here in Jonah chapter 3, it's the Hebrew word Elohim. It's not a person. It's just the kind of generic God, the gods, the powers that are to be. And there's no sense of worship. And then the record of history shows that these Assyrians, well, they ultimately would conquer God's people and send them into exile. They would return to their incredibly violent forms of oppression and warfare. What do we learn from this? And what do we not learn? I think we learn a few things. We learn, first of all, that whenever anyone repents, it is a gift of God's grace. God sent a messenger to the Ninevites. It is an expression of his kindness whenever anyone Repents. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. It is accomplished through his power and ultimately through his word. Jonah proclaimed the message that God had given him. We are called in Romans 10, 17. We're told faith comes from hearing the word of God. We proclaim God's word. Rent, repentance involves sorrow for sin and a change of heart. You see that. A real sense of grief and sorrow for sin and a change of heart on the part of the Ninevites. What's different and must be different is that now, because of Jesus, repentance need not be accompanied by fear and uncertainty, but by, rather, assurance and gratitude because Jesus took hell in the place of of all who look to him in faith. If you turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry about whether God will destroy you for your sins. Your sins have been paid for in Jesus Christ. His righteousness now covers you. Do you see how much freedom that brings to confess everything to God? So what's keeping you from, repent, from repenting? Are you afraid you've gone too far? That you're beyond rescue? Do you feel like you've got to clean up your act first? I love that hymn that says, Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Are you burdened by regret, consumed by self-loathing? Believe what God says about those whom he loves. The, the Old Testament says that you're the apple of his eye, which means that he's so focused in his concern for you. It's like at the very center of his eye, the center of his concern. He rejoices over his own with singing. This is how God acts toward those who repent and turn to him. In fact, if you repent and turn to him, it's an evidence that you have already begun to experience his love for you. So what's keeping you? What's keeping you? What will happen if you repent? Your guilt will be washed away. Your shame will be lifted. You'll begin to experience the love of your heavenly Father and you'll be given a new beginning. So let's wrap up by looking at that. Third, a new beginning. Verse one of Jonah chapter three. Just read it with me again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The second time. There shouldn't have been a second time. Jonah didn't deserve a second time. He didn't deserve a new beginning. God didn't need Jonah. It wasn't like God was like, oh man, well, I guess God doesn't need us. We don't deserve a second chance, a new beginning. We don't, we don't deserve to have God come after us a second time and a third time and a 500th time. And yet, 
He pursues, continues to pursue. In Psalm 23, David at the end of Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Right? Interesting. That phrase, goodness and mercy, they're technical words, if you will, that refer specifically to God's covenant love, his promise-keeping love, his never-failing steadfast love. And then that Hebrew word follow, surely God's covenant, faithfulness, steadfast love shall follow me. Actually, everywhere else in the Psalms, that word, this translated follow in Psalm 23 is translated pursues. God in his steadfast love will pursue me. He pursued Jonah. He's pursuing you. And if you are a Christian, he will not stop pursuing you. And so you can see then, can't you, where there's this sense of joy and wonder at God's love. I've been rescued from hell and I've been brought into this relationship in which the God of the universe who doesn't need me to complete himself centers his love on his son and therefore in his son on me and on you in a never-failing, eternal way so that the promise is not fear and uncertainty, but the promise of being a fully integrated human forever, of being more human than you are right now. Do you realize if you're a Christian, your best days are ahead of you? That when you die, your death is not the end. It's just the end of the beginning, and that the best is yet to come. This is where, by God's grace, you're headed. It's not just rescue from hell. It's the kingdom of God. This is the new beginning that will extend on into eternity. It can be yours. God is always sending out messengers, offering this grace of repentance and deliverance from the terrible reality of hell. Will you receive it? And if you have received it, out of love will you proclaim it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would be with us. You know how much we need your help. And let that help, O oh Lord, take the form of a greater sense of wonder at the fact that you have forgiven us. Lord, would you give us a greater sense of our sin as Christians that we might marvel at the fact that you have delivered us from the death that we deserve by pouring on your Son, Jesus Christ, all the wrath and all the hell that we deserve and having been rescued not because of anything that we brought to the table but simply because of your grace would you make us people who growing in our recognition of such love love you and love all people and love people enough to warn them and to offer them the same grace that we've been shown in your son Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen